I was uh, starting on Wednesday, wondering what I was going to talk about on Shabbat, and I had a dream, and I don't remember what the dream was, but I remember very distinctly that in that dream I was just terribly embarrassed. Whatever led up to it, the whole thing just terribly embarrassed me, and as I say, I don't remember the dream at all other than that, and that sort of stuck with me. The thing that came to me is that I was supposed to talk about humility. So we will. For those of you who have been through the Musar course, you recognize that humility is one of the out or measurements of character in the Jewish way of looking at things, which I think is very good. And humility doesn't mean what most people think it means. It means something different. We think of humility as being low, abased, kept down, etc., humiliated. certainly does have that connotation, but humility shouldn't. If you look at the scripture, Numbers 12.3, now Moses was a very humble man, more so than any other man on earth. So if Moses, arguably the second greatest human being that has ever lived, was humble. That should tell you something about humility. And then in Matthew 21.5, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on the colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Yeshua also describes himself as humble. So we got the two greatest human beings in history. We got Yeshua and we got Moses and both of them are described as humble which should tell you that that doesn't mean that somebody is pressed down, abased, looked down on, any of those kinds of things. That's not what it means. What it means, in a nutshell, is having an appropriate view of yourself, or to put it another way, seeing yourself the way God sees you. Everybody is put in different roles, the way the Musar text describe it, is your role determines how much space you should take up. So right now, I'm standing in front of you and I'm talking. So if you will, this is the amount of space I should be taken up. So if I were sitting in my seat and quietly mumbling down into my hands as I sat like this and tried to give a sermon, I wouldn't be taking up the appropriate amount of space. I would not be doing what I'm supposed to do. If, on the other hand, if I were to go to, say, a ballet recital where Fiora was dancing, so far as I know, she hasn't got any aspirations to be a ballet dancer at this point. But if I were to go to such a recital, and I were to walk up on the stage, and I would start doing this, I would be taking up too much space. I would be acting inappropriately. So the idea of taking up the appropriate amount of space is key to humility. Figuring out what the amount of space you should be taking up in any given situation and then taking up that amount of space and no more. So the idea is leave space for everybody else around you and take up what you should have. And those of you who have been through Musar, are aware of the idea that all of us are born imperfect. It's a feature, it's not a bug. 
to the best of my knowledge, only one person has been born perfect, and they crucified him. So the idea that you come into this world imperfect is part of the design. And each of us is imperfect in different ways. If everybody were imperfect in the same way, we would really be in trouble. But the idea that you're imperfect differently than I'm imperfect gives each of us then the ability to to use the scripture again, iron sharpens iron. So the place where I'm imperfect, if you are fairly strong in that area, when my imperfection manifests itself, you can sort of say, hey, sit down, bud. You're out of line, which would be very appropriate. So the whole purpose of Musar is to figure out where you're out of balance and work on those areas and take the ones where you're in good balance and help other people in those areas. So if you are really good in, for example, generosity, you can help somebody who has a problem with generosity. Similarly, if you're really good in humility, you can help somebody who has a problem with humility. Now, humility, again, as most of you know from the Musar course, has got a range. At one end of the range is what we would call arrogance. And that's not good. And at the other end of the range is what we would call self-abasement. That is also not good. So the idea that either extreme is not good is perfectly good musar. But what we tend not to think of is the bottom edge of the spectrum. In other words, what we think is somebody who is self-abasing is a very humble person. That's not true. Somebody who is self-abasing is focusing on himself negatively. Somebody who is arrogant is focusing on himself positively. Negative and positive, both ends of the spectrum, indicate an unhealthy focus on you. And that's what pride is. Pride is an unhealthy focus on yourself. It can be positive focus, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread, and that's arrogance. Or it can be a negative focus, which is I am really just a worm, which is negative. Both of those are manifestations of pride. In other words, you're focused entirely on you. So, what do Proverbs have to say about it? Proverbs 11.2 When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But the humble is wisdom. Notice humility is wisdom. The idea that when you are in proper balance with your focus on yourself, in other words, you're not focused on you more than you should be or less than you should be, that gives you the ability to attain wisdom. Now, why would being focused in the wrong way not enable you to attain wisdom? Because if you're focused one way or the other, you don't think you have anything to learn. So if you think that you are really hot stuff, you're not learning. Similarly, if you think that you are nothing, you're also not learning. Wisdom is in the middle. It gives you openness. You're open to what people say. You're open to what new experiences you get. You're open to learning. 
as opposed to if you're focused just on yourself, you're sort of a dead end. Now, the reason that humility is the first of the character traits that is studied in typical Musar is because humility dictates how you see the rest of the midot, the measurements. I'll give you an example. Generosity. If you are arrogant, then everything belongs to you. And it messes up your perspective of generosity. Similarly, if you are self-abased and nothing belongs to you, then you wind up giving things away unwisely. So if you're out of balance with respect to humility, you will then be out of balance with generosity, perhaps. Similarly, you will be out of balance with gratitude. If you're arrogant, why should I be grateful to you? I deserve it. If you are self-abased, oh, thank you very much for just looking and noticing me. Neither one of those is good. Similarly, patience. I want it now, and I want you to get it for me immediately. So if I am arrogant, then my patience is going to be out of balance. And similarly, if you are self-abased, patience is going to be out of balance because you will never assert yourself and make things happen. So that's why humility is the first thing that is talked about in Musar. One of the things that our society has a problem with today is humility. That shouldn't surprise anybody. Because what you're seeing with cancel culture and what you're seeing with our society right now is pride run amok. You have people who are enraged because things aren't running to suit them. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to coerce you into doing things their way through emotional tantrums. And you can see it on the news. My favorite phrase is to watch network news is to volunteer to be lied to. The point is, you can find these people all over the place because they are ascendant right now in our culture. They're the ones that are in the news. And what that is, is pride run amok. And as the proverb says, you're not getting any wisdom there. All you're getting is yelling and screaming and an emotional tantrum. The other thing that a lack of humility will mess up is it will mess up the forgiveness process. And forgiveness is one of the basic things that is taught in Scripture. What Yeshua says, for example, is the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words, if you're unforgiving, God will not forgive you. It's extremely important. It's extremely important for your own well-being, but it's also extremely important for the well-being of the community. And if your humility is out of whack, then your ability to forgive is going to be out of whack also. So again, if you're arrogant, you'll never forgive. Because how dare you insult somebody so important as I am? Don't you have any idea what your place is? There's no forgiveness there. Similarly, on the other side is, oh, I'm 
just a worm and I will never assert myself. So humility is sort of the base. Now I'm going to give you two scriptural vignettes that talk about humility. The poster child for improper humility in the Jewish literature is Rabbi Zechariah ben Avkulus. And you may have heard the story, been around. You all know what Tisha B'Av is, the ninth of Av. Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, is when the temple was destroyed first by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar and then by the Romans under Titus Vespasian, same day, hundreds of years apart. In the case of the Romans, there was a guy by the name of Bar Kamsa, but there was a guy that was giving a party, and Bar Kamsa was his mortal enemy. But he also had a really good friend named Kamsa. So Kamsa and son of Kamsa. So when he's making up his party, he sends a servant out to send an invitation to Kamsa. The servant messes up and gives the invitation to Bar Kamsa. So when the big party happens, Bar Kamsa shows up thinking he's been forgiven, and the guy who's given the party looks at him and says, get out of my house. What he does is he embarrasses Bar Kamsa in front of all the guests and throws him out. Well, this just naturally annoys Bar Kamsa. His reasoning process is, this event happens in all of the leadership of Israel. All the rabbis are here because it's a really big party, and they all sat by when I was treated this way. So what he does is he goes to the Romans, and he says, the Jews are going to be in rebellion here. You need to get ahead of this. Romans said, how should we know that? I mean, we just got your word for it. So Bar said, I'll tell you what. What I want you to do is send a sacrifice, and what will happen is they will refuse your sacrifice, which means that they are getting ready to go into rebellion. Rome said, okay, cool. So they get a very fine calf as a sacrifice, and normally if the Gentile brings a sacrifice, if it's an acceptable sacrifice, it's sacrificed. But on the way, what Bar Kamsa does is cuts the lip of this calf so that it becomes blemished. So when he shows up to the sacrificial place and they see that the thing's blemished, this rabbi Abkulis says, well, we can't sacrifice that because if we sacrifice it, everybody is going to think that it's acceptable to bring a blemished offering. And everybody says, but wait a minute, this is a setup. Well, I know it's a setup, but we can't sacrifice a blemished animal. Well, how about if we just go ahead and kill Bar because he's obviously a traitor. And Abkula says, well, shoot, we can't do that, because then people will think that if you bring a bad sacrifice, you're going to get killed. So what happens is this guy will not make a decision. He waffles back and forth. He doesn't think that he has the authority and the ability to make an exception. And because of that, they reject the sacrifice. And the Romans say, aha, Bar Kamsa was right. And that's what launches the siege of Jerusalem and its eventual destruction. So what the rabbis say about Abkulis is that his lack of proper humility resulted in the destruction of our temple.
So that's the Jewish story. Perfectly good rabbinic story. These rabbinic stories, they're sort of like Washington chopping down the cherry tree stories. Everybody knows that story in Judaism. The other one I want to do is, however, from the New Testament. Let's look at Peter. Now, you all know Peter, right? The only time Peter ever opens his mouth is to change feet. Teasing, obviously. So in Matthew 26, in verse 30, this is at the Mount of Olives. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Yeshua said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. In other words, not only am I loyal, I'm more loyal than these other 11 schlubs. I'm the man. Yeshua said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then all the disciples chimed in and said the same thing. I mean, you know, once somebody's doing that, everybody's got to do it. But look at Peter. I will gently suggest that that's pride on parade. You know, you all know the story. Peter denies him three times, and the cock crows, and Peter runs off weeping. Appropriately so. But then we get down to John 21. And this is after the resurrection, and this is the famous incident where Yeshua is cooking breakfast for him on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. When they had finished breakfast, Yeshua said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Yeshua said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. And when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, what Yeshua is doing is a couple of things. Thing one is I think that he is having Peter unsay the three denials. Denied him three times, we're going to back that out and have you unsay that three times. But the other thing that's going on is what he's doing is he is giving Peter a lesson in humility. What he's saying to Peter is, hey, at the Garden of Gethsemane, You were all puffed up and strutting around and say, you were the most loyal of all the disciples and you were going to follow me to death and you folded up like a cheap suitcase. In other words, your pride was unjustified. But notice he doesn't say you are disqualified. What he says is, feed my sheep three times. 
So what he's saying to Peter is, I still have use for you. You are still valuable to me. And in fact, if you're of the Roman Catholic persuasion, you're going to found the church. But understand that your pride led you to stumble. Your pride led you to deny me three times. Your pride puts you in a place that you couldn't sustain. Remember that. And the idea that when Peter is asked three times, it's only on the third time that Peter was grieved. And what I will suggest to you is that's Peter saying, duh, I denied him three times. He's now making me say I love him three times. I got the point. It's sort of one of those blinding flashes of the obvious for Peter, which is by way of adjusting his humility. So, what I will suggest, for those of you who are familiar with the Musar thing, this might be a good week to practice on humility. From the Musar thing, one of the things that they suggest, which I think is a really good idea, is you start each day with an affirmation to focus you on pride or humility for that day. And the two suggestions that the Musar has depending on which end of the spectrum you hit, and most of you probably know whether you're on the self-abasement end or on the arrogant end. And there's stuff in between. I mean, you don't have to be slammed over against each side. But you know which way you tend to go. So if you tend to be on the really proud of yourself side, you might take your affirmation in the morning of, I am but dust and ashes. And what that tells you is, this is what God has made me from. I am a creation of God, I'm a child of God, but I'm also made of dust and ashes, which sort of brings you back down. If you are on the side of, poor me, nobody loves me, everybody hates me, and I guess I'll sit in a corner quietly and look into my lap, I would suggest your affirmation might be, Christ died for me. I am important enough to God that Christ died on my behalf. Pick one, either end, depending on what your predilection is. And then as you go through your day, pay attention. Because one of the things that is an enemy to character development is inertia. We all just sort of go along through the day doing what is normal for us to do, whatever that is, and we really don't think about it. We just sort of do. And what I'm suggesting to you is if you would like to do this exercise, go through the day, having said your affirmation, whichever one you pick, or pick one of your own. I mean, you know, you don't have to use those two. There's lots of affirmations that you could use. Go through the day and spend your day focusing on instances where your pride, either positive or negative, tends to raise its ugly head. And just, oh, okay, that's out of whack. I don't like the way that's going. Now, if you got no problem with pride, work on something else. But I will suggest that most of us probably have a small problem in pride and can benefit from the exercise.
So I will suggest that to you. And for those of you who want to do it, next week in Midrash, we can take a few minutes and you can come back with your observations. And if you've learned anything or if that was a, a good exercise for you, we can talk about that for a few minutes. The Midrash next time.